Hello, and welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. My name's Orlando Jenkinson, and I'm a reporter with Wind Power Monthly. With the rapid rollouts of new wind energy projects needed for the green transition underway, Indigenous and First Nations communities are being confronted by wind energy developments on their traditional lands, often without ever asking for them and despite their opposition. While protests and legal battles flare between these communities and the wind industry, is this an inevitable conflict? Or is there space for a mutually beneficial coexistence? We discuss these issues across three interviews that make up today's episode. Firstly, I spoke with Larry Wright Jr., the Executive Director of the National Congress for American Indians, about why the organisation is calling for a pause on offshore wind developments in the US and asking the federal government to ensure tribal sovereignty is respected by the wind industry. Welcome, Larry, to the Wind Power Podcast. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about the development of wind energy projects on indigenous um, territories. I was just wondering whether you could explain a little bit about a resolution that was passed by the NCAI earlier this year that effectively called for a halt in offshore wind developments in the United States and asked the Biden administration to fulfill several criteria before they should continue. The resolution that uh, was passed was emergency of nature for the tribes that were involved, dealing with their cultural resources and sacred sites, and felt that uh, there wasn't adequate uh, consultation with with the tribes in the area, and uh, just wanted to make sure that uh, those issues were addressed. When tribes themselves uh, come forward, we fully expect the sovereignty of tribal nations to be respected, and for many tribes, the support for alternative energy is very critical and, and important. And so it wasn't uh, to say that there wasn't support of the project or the support of, of wind energy, but just the fact that the tribes themselves weren't consulted on that sovereign basis. And so that, that was really the impetus behind that. I think it really comes down to making sure that when projects like this are coming into land that was once inhabited by the tribes themselves before relocation and those kind of efforts. There's still a cultural connection to that land and a historic connection. Like any other project, whether it be a road or or anything else, we want to make sure that those sacred sites and cultural relevant sites are respected. And I think that's the point of the contention of of making sure that tribes are involved in, in those kind of conversations from the outset. So when there is support for a project overall, they're not looking to hold it up, but making sure that they're respected and that sovereignty is respected. And, and so tribes know their local history. They know where their lands were, even if they're not there now. But uh, when the tribes have that specific knowledge to the land and, and making sure that things are done right, it's much better when the tribes are at the table from the outset. In the resolution itself, there was also some suggestions that tribal nations be included in management, permitting and development of wind energy projects as well. Is that something you'd like to see going forward? And what precisely might that look like? For NCAI, we represent the tribes on the interest of tribal sovereignty and wanting to protect that sovereignty when it's encroached upon. And and we don't speak for any specific tribal nation or tribal government. We represent the tribes as a whole. And not all tribes agree on every issue, and especially wind power. Some tribes don't want that in their homeland, and and we respect that from their tribal sovereignty standpoint. Overall, 
tribes don't oppose clean energy in principle and don't oppose the concept of clean or, or green energy. Again, when tribes want to be partners from the outset and aren't treated as partners, that creates a confrontation that wouldn't necessarily need to be there if, if they were listening from the outset. When we look at how clean energy is produced, where it's produced, how it's regulated, who gains the primary benefits from it, who deals with the negative impacts from it, these are all issues that tribal nations care deeply about and have voiced concerns about. There's always a need for more government-to-government consultation between the United States and the tribal nation governments, but not just from consultation, but meaningful collaboration to ensure the legitimate concerns of tribal nations are not only being heard, but the actions that are being taken to protect tribal interests in the development of wind energy. And this is nothing new, but you know this is the same request that's being made with any development that impacts tribal nations' lands, water, airspace. Regarding wind energy and other types of energy development, I know you've mentioned that tribal nations aren't per se opposed to renewable energy. Is there sort of a difference in perception between wind energy and other forms of energy development, like gas and oil, for example? Wind energy is is different in nature. And when we look at gas and oil and what that extraction process is and has been and the impact that it's had on lands, whether you talk about oil pipelines that have come in recently and problems that are they still have with those, even though they said it's efficient and environmentally safe when we continue to see pipeline breaks and oil spill in different areas and and so obviously you don't have that with wind energy other than where it's put and the impact that it has on historic tribal lands or even contemporary tribal lands. And so that's the difference there. And again, the green energy, you know, tribal nations by and large are supportive of that and alternative energy, but there are some of those methods are potentially harmful too. It would extract the minerals needed to produce some of that green energy. It's a different kind of impact on the land and and one that can't be ignored either. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. So when we're talking about the Biden administration, but also what wind energy developers, you know, like some of the private companies that are building wind energy projects are doing as well. I'm just wondering how likely you think it will be that we're going to see a significant change in their approach in the coming years. The issues in the United States aren't directly with the industry itself with the federal government. They do the permitting and approval process. If they're not following those steps or requiring the industry to follow those steps, then that's where the breakdown is. And so that doesn't mean that there aren't actions the wind industry or any other industry for that matter could take to avoid potential pitfalls. The most critical thing that the wind industry could do is simply to support tribal sovereignty by listening to what the tribal nation's concerns are and by encouraging the U.S. government to listen and react to those concerns as well. It sounds simple, but the easiest way to avoid the disputes and conflicts is to talk about the issues before they become disputes and conflicts. And the industry can definitely play a role in that dialogue. And the United States needs to uh, make sure that they're enforcing those rights that are there by the tribal nations. It's entirely possible that some tribal nations are ready to develop energy right now. And others are open to it if their concerns are respected. But there's still other tribes who will never embrace that kind of development on their lands or in their offshore traditional territories. NCAI will support wind energy developments on indigenous territory where the sovereign governments of that territory approve those developments. 
Thanks for clarifying that. Ideally, what we would hope for then going forward would be more of a sort of bespoke approach, depending on the specific situation where a wind energy development is, is taking place, then I suppose. Yeah, it all comes back to at the beginning of the project, the beginning of when those talks are happening, making sure the tribes are being engaged and the voices or, or concerns are being heard. And, and I think that goes a long way to making sure that there's support from the beginning to the end of a project. Just to end on, we know that um, the climate crisis is reaching something of a critical point at the moment. How important do you think that the deployment of renewable energy projects like wind energy is in terms of prosperity for everyone in the United States and Feverfield as well? I think it is an important piece moving forward. When we talk about climate issues, it's definitely one piece of the puzzle for a solution. But again, in speaking from an NCAI perspective, we know not all tribal nations agree on the value of wind industry or oil and gas industry or, by extension, solar power. And those tribes have different economic interests and some are tied to oil and gas. And again, our judgment isn't that they're wrong. It's That's our sovereign right to exercise that economic opportunity for them to help their tribal citizens. At the end of the day, we're really focused on upholding and respecting and engaging tribes and making sure that their tribal sovereignty is recognized and we're trying to protect that. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Larry. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate the interest in uh, what's going on and, and elevating that concern that we have in this particular area, but thank you. As the NCAI have pointed out, the state has a key role to play in making sure First Nations sovereignty is respected. But what happens if the state or a state utility is directly behind wind energy projects that could negatively impact Indigenous communities? Next, we spoke with Aslak Holmberg, president of the Sami Council, about the growing protests by Indigenous Sami communities in the Nordic countries against wind energy developments impacting their traditional ways of life and reindeer herding. Thanks for joining us. I'll start. Hello. Thanks for the invitation. Now, Sami communities have been protesting the existence of several wind farms in Norway in recent years. To start off, could you explain a little bit about the background um, of those protests and what the current situation is regarding that dispute? Perhaps I start with explaining briefly the most well-known case, which is in the South Sami area in the Fusen where there is the largest uh, onshore uh, wind power plant in Europe. The problem with that uh, wind power plant is that um, it is built on um, traditional uh, Sami lands without the consent from the communities whose uh, territories these are has been concluded by the uh, Norwegian Supreme Court. Uh, the wind power plants, uh, they mean that the Sami are not able to practice their culture in this area because basically the territories are lost from uh, Sami traditional use. And uh, as uh, this is uh, such a huge area, then it means that uh, they have lost a significant part of their grazing lands for the reindeer because reindeer do not go where the wind turbines are are functioning. So this is why there have been extensive protests, um, because the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, these are indeed illegal wind power plants because uh, they offend uh, Sami right uh, to culture. 
because uh, the state uh, has basically done nothing to follow up on this uh, Supreme Court ruling, then there has been extensive uh, protests in uh, in the capital in, and in other areas in Norway to push for the state to follow up on these decisions. Would it be possible to explain a bit about um, what it's like for Sami people living in proximity to these wind farms? For many people who are living close to nature, going there day by day, then losing these areas that uh, you have ancestral ties to and a daily connection to, then it is, of course, quite uh, drastic. Of course, it also has impact on their livelihood, as the Supreme Court also ruled that the Sami community that is impacted will not be able to practice reindeer herding to the extent as has been possible before, which uh, basically means that some families will have to stop practicing their traditional livelihood, which is an essential part of um, uh, Sami culture. Uh, These livelihoods carry immense uh, wealth of knowledge. They carry language. These are gathering places. It's a whole social network built around these practices. So obviously we know that as you alluded to, the Norwegian Supreme Court made a ruling agreeing with many of the points that the Sami protesters were raising. But you said the state hasn't acted on that at all so far. Is that correct? Yes, there hasn't been any any action, and um, uh, this uh, state-owned uh, power company keeps uh, making money with these uh, wind power plants that are illegal based on their own Supreme Court uh, ruling. So that is, of course, very unsustainable situation, and I know that for many Sami, it um, it causes. Um, deterioration of trust towards the whole uh, justice system if uh, when we win in court we still lose because the Sami community clearly won the case but still nothing has happened the wind turbines are still there and basically they have lost uh, these territories for now no meaningful action has been taken by the state can i just ask what the engagement in general has been like between both um, the Norwegian state and also with the wind energy companies, the developers behind these projects with Sami people? Yeah, um, well, like in this case, the state-owned wind power company has uh, had uh, some sort of uh, dialogue with uh, communities who have uh, from the very start stated that uh, these projects will be harmful for their livelihoods and explained in detail what will be the impacts uh, to their practices and culture. Yes, never mind of what they said, uh, the state still moved on, on the wind power company moved on with the planning, although the concerns that were raised were later confirmed by the Supreme Court in their ruling. So that to me shows uh, like a lack of um, efficient ways of ensuring that um, rights violations are avoided. So even though uh, there was some level of engagement with the Sami rights holders, it was uh, not uh, sufficient enough to to avoid uh, these um, human rights violations from taking place. So if there's not a sufficient structure currently in place in, in Norway, what might the next steps be in terms of how the Sami communities act next regarding this situation? 
So I think there is a need to strengthen the, the position of uh, Sami communities when it comes to uh, negotiations between um, Sami rights holders and uh, wind power companies. And uh, definitely the, the state of Norway has a role to play in that um, they should uh, ensure that their legislation and regulations are strongly enough taking into account the Sami indigenous people's uh, rights uh, to negotiations and to their traditional territories. Uh, they failed in the uh, regulatory process to assess the impacts of this uh, construction to the Sami people's uh, possibility to practice their culture. So to me that shows that uh, there is, isn't efficient enough way of evaluating the uh, impacts um, to Sami traditional practices um, before this um, uh, construction is taking place. So there is uh, definitely a need to build a stronger impact assessment methods. And as far as the protests are concerned, are they likely to continue currently? Uh, yes, I mean, still nothing has happened and uh, we are getting closer to two years of inaction and um, meaningless explanations by the Norwegian ministries and, and state authorities. So I don't see that these protests would uh, stop without any meaningful action from the state of Norway. I'm wondering whether you think there is a comparison to be made between how the wind industry interacts with Sami communities and how other energy industries behave? Well, I don't think there is uh, much uh, difference uh, between whatever um, uh, industry it is, because um, we are living in a situation where the rights of Sami people are not uh, strongly enough recognized. So the Sami people's right to traditional territories, to the governance of traditional livelihoods uh, are not uh, recognized. So this also means that the Sami communities are not in a position to actually negotiate, but uh, they are in a position to be consulted, to share their opinions and, and it's uh, the state authorities who, who are making the final decisions. Thank you. I was also curious to ask you whether you think there is at all a way for wind farms to coexist with traditional Sami ways of life in, in any way. Is there a constructive path forward that you could see regarding this relationship? Ultimately, I see that um, the decision of the community has to be taken into account and, and respected. So I don't think we're in a position to say that uh, no Sami community would welcome any kind of wind power in their area. But definitely we have strong evidence now that this kind of large uh, scale uh, wind power construction without the consent from Sami communities is uh, definitely not uh, sustainable. In that sense, would you say that this current situation is almost the continuation of, of a historical trend in terms of Sami people's relationship with industrialization, with the development of the nation state and, and these modern ideas of, uh, of progress? Yes, I think that's a good question and a good uh, point to raise. I think it's uh, definitely a continuation of the policies and uh, the approach towards uh, Sami people that uh, we have experienced for centuries already. Um, so I don't think there is any 
clear issue that would differentiate this push for energy production in Sami territories to to other ways that we have been losing our territories, be that for extensive uh, logging, mineral extraction, or military ranges, or hydropower construction. So it doesn't really make a difference uh, why we are losing our areas, because um, the root, uh, the problem is that we keep losing our territories, and that is a trend that has been continuing now for a few centuries. It doesn't matter with what color you paint your project if the result is that we keep losing our territories and our space to live, then that's obviously bringing a lot of negative impacts to the community. So, Thank you for that. Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks again um, for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. Windpower Monthly contacted Statcraft, who developed the Fosenvind complex, for a comment about the case. A spokesperson said, The Fosent judgment must be followed up through a new decision and permit with adequate mitigation measures that safeguard the rights and cultural practices of the affected Sami. Fosent Vind regrets that the case has taken a long time and the strain it entails for those affected. We do what we can to help resolve the matter as quickly as possible. Fosent Vind is positive to the ongoing mediation initiated by the Ministry to find a solution and believes that it will be possible through dialogue to reach solutions that safeguard the rights of the reindeer herders concerned. With some indigenous peoples, like the Sami, facing such serious consequences from wind energy development, is there any opportunity for more mutually beneficial relationships between First Nations peoples and wind energy to exist in certain, perhaps different, contexts? And what might that look like? Finally, we spoke with Arash Moalemi of the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority and Tyler Hofbo from developer Avangrid about a new joint venture that the pair are pursuing on traditional Navajo lands in the southwestern United States. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Now, the NTUA and Avangrid announced earlier this year a joint plan to develop green energy projects together in the Navajo Nation. May I ask first, how did this collaborative project come about? We had a need on Navajo for certain expertise and technical assistance in wind development. When we talk about Navajo and NTUA doing these types of projects, I mean, we're still in our infancy stages in some of these resources and technology. Um, we have the expertise in the land and the natural resources on the Navajo Nation. However, on the actual technology, you know, we look for partners to help us develop projects. So um, happenstance, we set up a meeting with Alvandrid. We felt that their interest in working on Navajo was sincere and pursued that opportunity. And it ended up being an MOU between NTUA and Alvandrid to develop projects across the Navajo Nation yeah, I'll just add, you know, like I said, it was it was about a year ago that we started talking with NTUA about the potential for renewable development in Navajo Nation and this partnership. And obviously, Navajo Nation is a large area with a great solar resource and wind resource, too, in some areas. So the, the opportunity to work together with NTUA was seemed like a great opportunity for Avangrid at the time and, and still does. The MOU was signed in, in April of this year. What stage is the collaboration at at the moment and when might we see some moves towards um, developing, say, wind energy projects? We have a potential project up in, the, in a certain area where the Navajo Nation purchased land a while ago. It's a large area in the state of Arizona, 
And we were looking to develop a wind project in the 2010s. And we completed the permitting. We had a lease in place, but there, there was issues with the project. So um, that's something that we're working closely with Avangrid. It's about the big Boquillas Ranch. So we have a lease in place um, for development. And I think that's the area of focus right now for at least the first phase of um, wind development with Avangrid. The big Boquillas Ranch is, is a great opportunity for us. It's a huge land holding and, and has good resource for the state of Arizona. It's well positioned in the state to reach multiple markets. Through this MOU and through this relationship, we are able to be shortlisted. We applied for two DOE grants with Alvangrid, Department of Energy grants. We were pretty much shortlisted for both of those uh, grant opportunities. One of those, which is on former mine lands. So that's right next to a coal fire plant that will be retired within the next 10 years. So we're trying to change that shift in as far as using former coal generation sites for renewable energy on the Navajo Nation, which is very important for us. And I just want to add another important piece for this relationship, at least from the Navajo perspective. When we talk about development of projects on the Navajo Nation in the 1960s, when um, these coal-fired plants were um, went into operation, the Navajo Nation was not owners of the plants. They were actually just landlords and they leased the land and they got royalty revenue, but they didn't have any equity ownership in the plants. These large scale coal fire plants um, were used to power up L.A., Las Vegas, Phoenix and these large metropolitan cities and allow them to grow. None of that power went to the actual Navajo Nation. We didn't receive any of that power. We're trying to change that that narrative whereby Navajo Nation through NTUA will be owners of these plants. So every project that we look at, we have to be 51% majority owners of the project because we want to control the projects on the Navajo Nation and we want to have the ability to, to exercise our sovereignty and say, you know what, this is our project on our land. We have the right to make decisions, important decisions on these projects. And Avangrid has supported that, that objective from the nation side. So does that mean with each project, Navajo Nation is going to get at least 51% of the energy that's produced from these projects as well. The issue with the Navajo Nation, we still have four, about 14,000 homes without electricity, without electricity to the power grid. So on the utility side, our objective is to connect every person on Navajo, every home on Navajo that wants to be connected to the electric grid. So we still have about 14,000 homes without power. Since we're 27,000 square miles, we have three customers per mile on average. So our challenge is getting the funding, getting the resources to build out those lines to each of those homes. So what we do with these projects, these export projects, is essentially we build on Navajo, create jobs on Navajo. We create sales tax revenue for the Navajo Nation government. We produce energy on the nation. We sell that power off the nation and we bring the revenue back onto the nation to help power up the homes on the Navajo Nation. So it's very much a, a transmission project as well as developing renewable energy itself. Do you think it's fair to say that collaborative efforts between Indigenous or First Nations communities and energy developers are quite rare in the United States? Yeah, I do think it is rare. I think folks are a little bit hesitant and nervous to partner up with outside entities to that extent. I think it's just something that folks are just not comfortable with yet on the tribal nation side. I am Navajo. So I think from the Navajo perspective, there's a lot of trauma from past relationships with outsiders. 
whereby there's a lot of mistrust and just hesitancy because in the United States, you look at communities that we helped power some of our projects and our coal-fired plants. You look at these big cities that are just thriving, and then you come back onto Navajo, and you don't, you don't see that. And you don't see the big growth and development. You, you see some jobs created, but those jobs are going away, and they went away in those communities. And right now, th- there's a lot of trauma and, and mistrust with outside developers, not just developers, but outside entities. So I think there's a lot of due diligence that has to take place, which we do. Um, but I think there are opportunities out there. I think that, you know, for example, this relationship is a great opportunity and we feel comfortable and protected. And um, we think that both sides are getting um, benefits from the relationship. And we hope that this can serve as kind of a case study for other tribal nations and in, in how to approach these types of relationships and how to set them up so you can get that trust back and and you can see that this will help benefits for the actual the, the, the tribe itself. Did you have anything to add, Tyler, from like developers' perspective at all? There's obviously a lot of potential for renewable development within tribal communities around the United States. And establishing that relationship and establishing that trust is obviously the first step in, in opening that door and, and allowing developers in and also allowing you know the tribal communities to start benefiting in some way from the energy projects within those communities. I'm just happy that Arash and I have had the opportunity to sit down and, and that we've been able to establish this partnership and some level of trust to this point to start the development process and the partnership. You know, it's an exciting opportunity for Avangrid. To what extent is it the federal government's responsibility to make sure that tribal sovereignty is respected when it comes to wind energy development on Native American land? I think it's important to have that tribal input. On the Navajo Nation, we have certain um, mountains and peaks that are, um, you know, off the reservation that are sacred. And it's important for us to have input on that. And not just input where we get a notice from the developer or from an entity saying, hey, we're doing a project, we want you to provide comments, or hey, you know, come over here and, you know, whatever it may be to just try to check the box. I think we need something a little more assertive in, in allowing us to provide input and making adjustments or figuring out how to handle that situation. Because we do get notices saying, hey, there's a project off the nation. We're interested in your feedback. We provide feedback and nothing happens. So I think there's got to be something a little stronger because we feel that it's just checking the boxes in those situations where developers are not really looking to protect the, you know, the cultural interests of certain areas on or near reservations. Just going back to the project specifically, thing you wanted to talk about that I haven't I haven't mentioned yet. I'll just add one more thing and just say that, you know, Avangrid is, you know, really excited about this opportunity and is committed to the partnership. We're we're continuing to lead the development of renewable energy communities across the country. We're excited about what the IRA brings to the table, not only here, um, but but across the nation and and are excited to be a leader in, in the renewable development of, of wind and solar projects across the nation. You know, once again, I just want to reiterate, you know, the, the, the strong relationship we have with Avangrid and, you know, developing these projects and providing that assistance throughout, you know, our various projects. So that's a strong relationship and we hope that that'll help bring added benefit to our Navajo people um, through economic benefits, through infrastructure, through jobs, and through revenue back to the Navajo Nation. Thank you both for for joining us today and um, good luck with the project.
Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates or to sign up for one of our specialist bulletins delivered straight to your inbox.